Business of Technology podcast, episode number four, the Guilt Group's CTO and founder, Michael Brizek, on scaling guilt with open source software and microservices. The Business of Tech podcast is sponsored by Hadel. Try Hadel. It's designed to improve your team's productivity. It's a question and answer system that lets people ask, answer, and rate questions. Internal company information gets hard to find, lost in emails, or lives only in experts' heads. Stop the repetitive question and answer sessions on topics they've already covered. Share that information with Hadel. It's like a private Stack Overflow or Yahoo Answer site for your company. More information, including a free trial at Hadel.com. That's H-A-Y-D-L-E.com. And by Emerging Technologies for the Enterprise. ETE is our two-day conference held on April 22nd and 23rd, 2014 in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. We have five rooms of sessions and keynotes by Joel Spolsky of Stack Exchange and Fog Creek Software fame. Brian Getz, who wrote Java Concurrency in Action and was the spec lead for the upcoming Java 8 Lambda Expressions Language Editions. Our high-value, low-cost conference has speakers such as the pragmatic programmer himself, Dave Thomas, Twitter's Jeff Hodges, Netflix's Jafar Hussain, technologies from Closure to Vertex, from Jepson to Mesosphere, from Spring to Elm, and so much more. Visit phillyemergingtech.com and find out more information. Early bird registration will save you $100, but hurry up and register now before the tickets are all sold out. Welcome to the Chariot Business of Technology podcast. I'm Ken Rimple with host Tracy Wilson-Rossman. In today's interview, we talk to upcoming Philly Emerging Tech speaker, CTO Michael Brizek of the Guilt Group. For those of you immune to online shopping, and there's got to be almost no one now, Guilt processes Amazon-level order volumes every day at noon with their daily deals and has been doing so for years. We speak to Michael about the early days of the company, working with more monolithic web-based frameworks, and breaking out of that pattern and into the philosophy of writing small microservices, focused programs that are owned by a single team from design to production and support. We talk about how Guilt leverages open source tools, frameworks and languages, and how Guilt is beginning to share open source projects such as the Schema Evolution Manager on GitHub. Well, Michael Brizek, welcome to the uh, Business of Technology podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm happy to be here. The reason we brought you here is to discuss open source technology and Guilt. So, Tracy, do you want to talk a little bit about Guilt in, in general? Um, sure. So, um, Michael, I'm actually one of the early uh, users of the Guilt product. Um, I was uh, invited back in the day when you when it first came out, and uh, I've really been able to watch the evolution of the product um, and the platform from not only you know, understanding it from a technology standpoint from the backside, but also as a user. Um, and what's really impressed me is um, how the product has grown to the point where it's it works so nicely, not only on the web where you originally started, but also on um, mobile devices, whether it's my um, iPhone or tablet. Um, and also across um, different browsers. So I just wanted to um, sort of set the stage that it's not just an e-commerce um, package, but also um, just the thoughtfulness that's that's really gone into the performance and um, the experience from the user standpoint. 
And first of all, thank you very much for being with Guilt for all of these years. Uh, one of the one of my really early memories getting into Guilt is actually a comment from my wife who, when we were starting Guilt, told her what we were going to be doing, and she looks at me, she says, "Fashion, really?" But uh, <laughs> but at least I'll finally understand what you do for a living. So it was a it was kind of a nice blend of uh, tech and uh, and commerce and fashion. Um, one of the you know from the beginning, what we really spent a lot of time thinking about was the user experience and every little detail of the user experience to make it as simple as possible. And so when we started, uh, it really was just web. It was pre, um, you know, definitely pre-iPad. I think uh, I think it was pre-iPhone. And uh, and even the little details, I think we might have been one of the first to put the cart right there on the product detail page, not having a separate page for cart, and making it really simple to go from cart through to purchase. Uh, and removing any information that wasn't strictly necessary down to the detail level of things like your card type. And then when we started the, uh, we entered the kind of mobile space, in the beginning it was kind of, it, to be honest, it was pretty challenging because the site's growing and we're scaling with right. uh, the architecture and all of the APIs either were being created for the first time to support mobile or were changing. Um, and uh, but, but from the beginning, there was a clear strategy for each of the devices. And so today when we look at it, if you look at our iPhone product, it's called iPhone on the go, and on the go is there very intentionally. It's we really are designing the product with our customer in mind who's traveling. They may be getting into a taxi cab in the city. They may have a few minutes in line. They may be kind of waking up and just having a few minutes to check. And so everything about the iPhone app is designed for those kind of short periods of time, 30 seconds, two minutes, to browse, discover, and purchase. And today with tablets, it's really a different experience, and, and we see it in all of the usage. And so on our tablets, we'll see much more traffic in the evenings, and you can kind of imagine somebody uh, at home, home kind of unwinding. If they have kids, their kids are probably asleep, relaxing on the couch, maybe with a glass of wine. And really what they want to do is kind of discover and browse. It's much more browsing-oriented experience as opposed to kind of a find something and, and purchase experience. Uh, and so t even today, so when we look at when we, we build something new, if it's a really compelling feature, maybe it ends up showing up across all the different platforms. Uh, but often there'll be a feature that really is appropriate for guilt on the go, or maybe it's appropriate only for a desktop experience. And so the feature will be built just for the experiences where it really makes sense for the strategy for that particular device. Well, it sounds like we would definitely like to have you come back to talk about um, your mobile strategy. but. Um, today, we really would like to talk to you about guilt and open source. Um, and Ken's going to talk a little bit about the early sure. days. So, so, you know, uh, you've been using open source, I guess, since the beginning. Um, in the early days, obviously, when you were a startup and Tracy was invited, for example. Um, so what kind of software technologies did you use for uh, building the launch of uh, guilt.com? I understand some of the Tech Talks Rails was involved. Yeah, and even um, pre-Rails, what a kind of a, a secret story of Guilt's initial days. Uh, Fong Nguyen, one of our other co-founders, co and I, we had spent 10 years building software on top of Oracle's database. And so when we were starting Guilt, we said, you know, why would we do anything new? We're just going to use Oracle. And we spent the first few days of Guilt's history getting Oracle to run <laughs> on, a Ma on a MacBook. And uh, by then, MacBook really had come out, and it was really hard. We got it to work. We had Oracle running in a virtualized Linux um, container uh, using Rosetta to emulate the ODBC driver. We got the thing to work, but it was hard. And, and so then we looked around and said, okay, well, what are the other options? And MySQL was really popular at that time, and we downloaded MySQL and started to play with it. Um, and after a couple of days, we realized the learning curve for MySQL for us coming from Oracle was going to be pretty steep. 
Uh, and so we went and looked at Postgres, which has a design philosophy that's a lot closer to Oracle and ended up adopting Postgres pretty early on. And then from there, kind of we had in, it was kind of early 2000, early to mid 2007, uh, Rails had really hit kind of mainstream or was really just starting to gain popularity at that time and seemed like a great platform kind of optimized for time to market. So the initial version of Gilt uh, launched on uh, Ruby on Rails and was kind of a traditional Ruby on Rails app talking to a re relational database. And even today, kind of that, the core of that Rails uh, software uh, continues under active development. It is the base of the majority of our internal tools. We ended up building our own ERP system that's written in Rails and continues to be kind of developed and enhanced and really thrives for the ERP environment. So, and as you grew, did you hit some sort of scaling issues? And I, I hate to say that around Rails because you always hear the, yeah. the biggest criticism of Rails is it doesn't scale people would use and you can get uh, certain people very angry by saying that. Sure. But, um, you know, anything that grows from startup days, you know, you're going to get to a certain point where you need to kind of take a turn and re-architect. And so, um, you, you, I guess you said your back end, your, your, your mid-level systems, your ERP and such are, are in Rails, but you've moved from that, correct? From your production system? Yeah, and so for the production system, it's really kind of the differentiating line is systems that our customers interact with directly. And those systems have kind of a few kind of unique properties. One is that they, they can grow very, very quickly out there on the internet. Um, and and so at the end of the day, it's, it just becomes a question of how do you want to scale the application and what are the pros and cons of the different technologies available to help you scale. And just by definition, the fact that it's software and it's Turing complete, you can basically do anything in any piece of software. And so if we wanted to, we could have gone the route of scaling Gilt as a Rails application. And had we gone that route, you know, kind of fast forward, I mean, today Gilt is a kind of truly a microservices uh, architecture, and you could imagine a number of those services being written in Ruby and some in Rails and some in other frameworks, and, and probably it would have worked. What we were looking at at the time is, so, so the first thing that we were looking at is um, really separating out some of the consumer traffic into a dedicated application, and we wanted to leverage Ruby as much as possible because we had made an investment there, and so we spent three months and built a JRuby application as a proof of concept to really figure out what would it cost us in terms of kind of development, developer happiness, efficiency, productivity, and operational cost if we were to continue down the Ruby road. And at the same time, we built a kind of one-off uh, prototype of a JSP uh, Jetty-based solution, um, kind of very, very simple technology, or as simple as we can get, to just, just have kind of a point of reference. And, and really at that time, we, it was 10 times more expensive in terms of the operating cost to get the number of processors that we needed to handle the traffic that Gilt already had. And at that time, it was, it was really the difference of like $3,000 a month versus $30,000 a month to handle traffic. And, and this is really, really early in Gilt's history. Um, and so at that point, we kind of made the decision and said, you know what, we are going to go down the road of kind of uh, microservices based on JVM as a what we felt was a more cost-effective way to scale guilt use cases, um, given kind of the people that, that we had internally. That was a really, really tough decision. But at the end of the day, it felt great that we actually spent a number of months seeing kind of what were the alternatives, doing some testing. Um, and there was a lot of internal debate about it, but ultimately, you know, we had to pick a path and, and go with, all in on that path. And, uh, and I think it's, uh, I think it's actually worked out pretty well. Is this a 2010, 2011 kind of time frame, or? I think it was really in 2000, it was earlier. I think it was and we were on The View about six months after launch and just saw okay. a kind of huge amount of traffic. And, uh, and I think we had a huge, uh, another big sale in early 2009, if I recall correctly. And at that point, it was clear that we really had to uh, double down and, and scale out kind of certain parts of Gilt's architecture. 
And then when we looked at it, it's, you know, where was the traffic coming from? And at noon, one of the unique things about Guild's business model is that the ratio of our traffic at noon Eastern when our sales start and new inventory goes live to, say, 1 p.m. Eastern, uh, some days that could be 100x. And that meant even in like year two or three of our life, we were basically doing half an Amazon worth of traffic and, and commerce uh, during our peak times. And internally, we actually measured against Amazon. How many Amazons are we doing today? Uh, and that was the <laughs> hurdle. It, it was really that. Like, how do you handle kind of that amount of traffic um, that led to, I mean, it's one of the core engineering challenges. We still have it today. Uh, that drove a lot of the decision making. And so then when we looked at the consumer traffic, particularly on web, uh, it was what do people need first? Well, they need to be able to, uh, you know, view the web pages and they need to be able to log in and then they need to be able to add to cart. And so, and once they have it in their cart, they need to go and check out and place the order. And so we kind of, we, we basically looked at the funnel of traffic based on total impressions at noon and measured in requests per second. And then for the you know, most trafficked one, we went and took that, built a microservice, solved that problem move down the stack, and then once we had it down to when a consumer could place an order, we felt reasonably confident that the individual components could scale. That gave us some breathing room to then think about, you know, where, where do we want to reinvest now in the consumer experience and the features uh, and the growth of the product across the different platforms. I was just going to say, you're dealing with Cyber Monday almost every day. It, it really felt like that. And uh, internally, it used to be that, you know, we're, we're in the business of creating our own denial of service attack every <laughs> single day at noon. Right. Um, Although this Cyber Monday, Cyber Monday has continued to grow, and I think it's growing across uh, America as an important day in retail and uh, more and more in e-commerce. And, and even today, like I think Cyber, Cyber Monday this year set new record levels in terms of traffic. So Cyber Monday by itself is also a significant event. Talk a little bit about microservices for tech managers. You know, how would you just define a microservice as opposed to doing things in kind of a you know, monolithic uh, Ruby or Java server. So microservice, the idea there is that you identify a key thing, a key action, and develop software that is only managing that action or set of actions. So it could be as simple as, uh, so on Guilt, when you click Add to Cart, there is a service that handles the Add to Cart click. Uh, and then the question really becomes, what are the boundaries and what should be a microservice or not? How big are these services? How much do they handle? But really the... I think the interesting question is, what are the benefits of the microservices approach, and like why even consider it? And there, it's, when we think about scalability in a technology organization, a lot of times we think about, you know, what is the tech, how, how fast is the site, how many page views can it handle, how many impressions can it handle, how many users, etc. But really, scalability has another dimension, which is, how do you actually create an environment where great people can truly contribute and create things and how do you scale the organization so as the number of people grows that are contributing to say a company like guilt or any other company out there how do you make sure that the hundredth person you hire is more productive than the first person or the thousandth person is more productive than the hundredth person how do you keep that growth and how do you scale the organization and i think that's really the problem that microservices solves in a very very elegant way and the basic idea there is that each individual team and teams can be you know the extreme one person, but usually uh, at Guild we, we kind of subscribe to small teams of say two to six engineers. How that team ends up owning parts of Guild's infrastructure. They're the experts, they're the product managers, they write the code, they test it, they're accountable for its uptime, they're accountable for its performance. If it goes down, they get the call. If they want to release a new feature, they release a new feature. They decide what features to release. And what that really does is it provides a way to scale the organization where each of these individual teams now is operating on independently and delivering to production independently. 
And the only way that can work in, a, in, in the sense of driving the entire business forward in a coherent way is if then there's kind of an overarching kind of vision or clean separation between the services that people are writing. And so just as a concrete example, we'll have a team working on, uh, say, the communication between our e-commerce systems and the robots in the distribution center, so that when you actually submit your order, you know, 15 minutes later, it's in a box and on a UPS truck on its way to you. And they own that piece, and they'll have a number of services that support it, and they're, they're the experts, and they're doing amazing work. Meanwhile, we'll have a number of teams. You know, we'll have a team focused on the uh, you know, iPhone and a uh, team focused on kind of the web experience or parts of the web experience or search, and they can become truly, truly expert at it. And then the role of tech management is really to enable these teams to work productively together. Uh, and that's where I think the industry is really starting to focus, is how can you enable developers to truly gain access to either cloud resources um, or servers or data or create databases in production without the need for coordination with other groups, without the need for kind of approvals by management. They need something, they should be able to, via an API, get what they need so that they can de deploy new software to production so that either you know the, the experience is better for a customer, the, they remove Kind of one click on the on the funnel to check out. They optimize the communication with our distribution centers. They make life better for internal employees who are actually curating the sales that we all love to shop at the end of the day. And again, I think that's really the power of microservices, which is it's an incredibly useful tool for scaling a technology organization so that every nth person you hire actually can be more productive than the people that came before them. When did you begin to share your knowledge with others on tech.guilt.com about your open source projects? I would say about a year ago now is when we put together a concerted effort to increase um, kind of our contribution back to the open source community and to share a bit more about some of the things that kind of we've learned through the process of Guilt. Um, and really we were waiting until I would say that internally we felt that actually some of the things that we've learned are useful and great. We didn't want to, it really took some time to get to a point where we really have some things now that are just amazing and working really, really well. And so we feel like now it's our turn as having gained so much from the open source community that to the extent in areas where we've actually discovered things or learned things or created things to be able to start to contribute those items back to the community. And speaking about open source and microservices, these two things actually end up going really hand in hand. And one thing we love about the open source community is that the, it's basically a true marketplace. The, an open source project that is successful is successful because people choose to use that software. Nobody is telling them they have to use it. They just choose to use it because that software does something that's useful and helps them. And we think that's an incredibly valuable property of open source, so much so that internally we call it uh, voluntary adoption. Um, and so... One of the, and what that means is that as internal teams work together and say you have a team that's creating tools for other people, nobody is going to tell a team what tools to use. Instead, they're going to present the tools, make them available, and if teams like those tools, they will voluntarily adopt those tools and start using them. We think at the end of the day that kind of meritocracy of software is, an, is just an amazing way to uh, encourage and incent people to create really, really useful software. Software that's truly useful, that helps people, as opposed to software that's dictated. And that is the way the open source community works. Um, as we think about computer science as kind of an art, or programming as kind of an art form, and we, and we think about research and we look at the academic community, uh, there's a lot of similarities between open source and kind of the notion of publishing papers and sharing knowledge with each other so that together we can actually advance the field 
Uh, and internally, we believe you know computer science is a very still a nascent science. Some people will say it's not even science yet. So it's still a very nascent industry, uh, and and that's I think really at the end of the day one of the kind of the most compelling things about open source is together we can move this industry forward. People who love the concept of open source and are contributing and sharing, and and helping those end up being people that we'd love to work with. We love working with kind of at Guild. We love working with on kind of hobbies uh, and 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 outside of the office, and so. Open source and microservices kind of creates this culture that uh, just, frankly, just love being a part of, uh, and anything we can do to help, um, you know, we're trying. And I think we're still at Guild just at the beginning of that journey, and we look at what some of the other uh, companies out there have done, and it's just it's just amazing uh, to see our field uh, grow, really due to the con contributions of. Uh, these uh, engineers kind of all over the world. One of the things I, I saw that you were moving towards, and again, that you've been working with for a little while, is Scala. And, um, you know, you'd started with a kind of re-architecting your services using Java-based microservices, um, but then you started working with, with Scala. Um, did Scala kind of accelerate kind of the ability to deliver, you know, high-quality microservices? What, what made you push down the road of Scala? Yeah, and it's you know, programming languages again are just tools, uh, and they're really, really kind of side, kind of a side focus. What we really spend a lot of time on here is just attracting people who are uh, amazing. And Scala came about because one of these amazing, amazing engineers had been working in Scala, joined Guilt, and uh, just. He was convinced Scala was a more efficient way for him to work and contribute to Guilt, and so he spearheaded the effort. And, and, and then we saw more people kind of get interested. It's like, what is this thing, Scala? Can it help? Let me learn about it. Over the course of probably you know, six months, Scala entered mainstream at Guilt, and over the course of another year and a half, it became kind of the de facto standard because everybody who had transitioned to Scala preferred Scala. And it was less about Scala itself as a programming language, but it was really the paradigm of functional programming right. and the paradigm of immutability and the, the benefits that we gain as an organization, um, this kind of the stability, the, the simplicity of understanding what each of the services do. Uh, I think those are really, really the big benefits. Um, and then, yeah, ultimately, you know, we don't formally measure it, but ultimately, you know, we haven't had a null pointer exception in production in years. Uh, uh, we are doing much more testing today than we ever have. Uh, developers are happier uh, and kind of feel more productive you know, um, than kind of ever before. Uh, and so I think Scala passed the test of voluntary adoption here internally at Guilt, and it's been kind of great to see the overall community around Scala really, really growing. Uh, but again, I think some of those properties are just, it's, it's something that some amazing people love working on. They love kind of the simplicity of the code, the elegance of the code. They love the idea that you can have immutability and kind of all the benefits that functional programming brings. And then when they get into more complicated systems, they love the fact that you have, you know, actors are readily, readily available in some of these concepts from kind of earlier work, um, so, uh, influenced strongly by Erlang, but kind of proven work for scaling uh, software is just readily available in there. And, and you, the example proves the rule there, which is it's a meritocracy out there. And yeah, and you know one of the big benefits of Scala is that it is it does run on the JVM and it runs incredibly well on the JVM. Right. Uh, and so really, it's just an evolutionary thing. For two years, some people are building stuff in Java, some people in Rails, some people in Scala. Uh, and the nice thing about Scala is that all of the work that we did is available. And now, now you see that kind of it's pure Scala development. The kind of the wrappers and the client libraries are kind of nicer to use now from Scala than they were in the past. But kind of those are minor 
And those are kind of minor details. The ecosystem works. Uh, and we do have, if you're a guild and you are working on the JVM and you build something on the JVM, you have access to everything that basically anybody else a guild has built because it works on the JVM. Uh, and that's become a pretty important part of our infrastructure. Doing things off the JVM means you have to redo a lot of work uh, that you wouldn't that you would get for free at this point as long as you stuck to the JVM. Right. So you're doing a lot of stuff um, now, like talking on tech.com and showing tech talks every month and you know, kind of providing those as videos. And again, you've started with your GitHub site, which is github.com slash guilt. Um, you know, just briefly as we can start wrapping this up here. Um, some of the open source projects that are up on that site, um, I did a quick look through them and saw a few that were interesting, one of which specifically is a schema evolution manager. What are your favorite projects up there, just briefly? Yeah, so schema evolution manager, um, particular fondness for, and really where that comes from, there's kind of two observations. One is that it's really, if you can always roll back the software you deploy, you will have a more reliable service. Most software is very easy to roll back. Database schema is not. Yeah. And in most applications, in most of the frameworks as people get started, when they deploy code, they deploy schema and code together as a package. And that means that all of a sudden the entire application can no longer be rolled back. So what we decided to do broadly is we just put a rule in that said everything has to be able to be rolled back. And that means that we need to deploy schema by itself. We also said that we're not going to pretend that schema can be rolled back. So we're going to be more conscious of there's more code review, there's kind of more testing of schema changes. We're going to make sure that that stuff is rolled forward. If you make a mistake, it's going to be a lot of work to, 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 to roll back and we acknowledge that. Um, and, so, and then when we look at the microservices approach, most enterprises end up with one big database. And when you have one big database, no matter what the technology, all of a sudden you have very expensive tools to figure out what's actually causing a slowdown in performance, um, if there is a slowdown in performance. And so you end up investing all this time and energy just to figure out what the heck just went wrong. Yeah. Uh, with the microservices approach, you don't have to do any of that. It's like this database, the guest database no longer works. Well, what's the problem? Well, it must be the guest service because that's the only thing using that database. Okay, so which team should look at it? Well, it should be the team that owns the guest service. And it's a very, very, th there's no complexity there. That's a huge benefit. So what we end up with is you go from one monolithic database and very specialized DBAs to literally hundreds of databases. I think we crossed 100 databases half a year ago now. Wow. Um, and so all of a sudden you have hundreds of databases and people are managing their databases and the data, it's really a, a, a service. Um, the database is just a service provider to the service. If you're using relational technology, now you need a way to manage kind of how do you deploy and manage all the schema changes in a way that you get code review and you can deploy this code and, and so on. And so that's really the problem that Schema Evolution Manager solves, which is a dead simple, anyone, it'll work on any Linux, it has no external dependencies, you just install it, and all of a sudden it kind of manages the sequencing of your schema changes. Behind the scenes, we use Garrett here on top of Git, which provides the code review workflow, and Schema Evolution Manager packages up your schema changes as a tar file, so it's just a tarball. You can put it in RPM if you want, and you can just drop it into however you deploy your normal software. And so here at Guild, we deploy schema as normal software. It goes on to release. It's tagged. It's the only thing that exists deployed. Uh, and that, again, is just a huge advantage because now we have literally every team managing their own databases and able to do it with a common set of tools that are incredibly well-tested and does kind of one thing well. Um, and that, I think, is one of the keys to a lot of the open source projects that end up being successful is that they really focus on a problem and solve that problem in a simple, elegant, and robust way. And over time, people gain confidence. If I use this library for this problem, it's going to work. Uh, and I think there's, a, there's just a ton of good examples out there 
of open source software doing one thing really, really well with as simple an implementation as possible. How would you recommend that companies start putting their toes into open source contributions? Uh, you started about a year ago. What worked for you? And what didn't work? One of the pieces that we're still learning here at Gilt, and I think all, co all companies face this to a, a varying degree, is that there are tools that are built to optimize or, say, increase efficiency internally. And normally, those tools, they seem to make sense. Like, oh, we have everybody publishing software in the same way, so let's write some tools so that people makes it more efficient for people to publish or deploy software. But as soon as you do that, you introduce dependencies into every new piece of code that's written at the company. And unless those dependencies themselves are open source, they end up being an obstacle to being able to open source those projects. So I think um, one of the best ways to make sure that um, if you're interested in open sourcing, one of the easy, best things to do is to actually reduce the, dependent, the internal dependencies. And when you feel like you need to create something internally, rather than developing that as an internal proprietary piece of software, maybe, maybe there's a need in the open source community, create that as an open source project and then leverage the open source uh, internally. And that's something that we're still going through a transition here at Gilt. Um, I think it's pretty common. But fundamentally, if you want open source, then use open source tools, and then it becomes much, much simpler to publish to the open source community. So, Michael, thank you so much. We're looking forward to meeting you in person on uh, April 22nd. Um, where we'll really be diving into getting uh, companies really ready to do open source projects and why it's important uh, for their teams. Sounds great. Thank you again for having me. It was a great talking to both of you. Same here. Thank you very much. Thanks to our guest, Michael Brzezek, CTO of the Guild Group, for talking to us about open source in his company. You can find out more about Guild's various projects by visiting their GitHub page, github.com slash guilt or visiting the technical blog at tech.guilt.com that's g-i-l-t dot com we'd love to hear from you drop us a line on twitter i'm at krimple and tracy tweets as t wilson rossman we tweet podcast episodes on techcast and chariot tweets as chariot solution you can also post messages on each show in the comments section on our website for the business of tech podcast i'm ken rimple